worshiping. It is so good to be with you. Um, it truly is a blessing uh, and a joy to be here uh, because of the kindness of your church, the kindness of your leaders, and the kindness of, of Lord Jesus, of course, to allow me uh, the privilege of worshiping together with my brothers and sisters in Christ here in Stanwich. Um, the, the, the time started out great. You guys have taken care of every little detail, including the flight in and had the pilot take the perfect approach into New York City um, on a perfectly clear day. Uh, so I was able to see the Statue of Liberty out the window and, and downtown Manhattan, the boroughs sprawling, and just really appreciate this city. It's just an amazing city New York is. Um, I, I fly quite a bit, more than my family would prefer. Um, and this is one of the few times I think everybody on that plane was looking out a window as the plane was coming in for a landing. You know, usually we're just putzing around doing whatever, but there's something about this view. And so that was just a great way to start this trip. Uh, and then last night it even got better as I was able to enjoy some time with your pastors, your leaders, uh, their spouses, um, just getting to know them a little bit more, getting put on the spot by Pastor Nathan. Yes, I've got a microphone right now. Let's see how mad I might be. <laughs> it is evident that your leaders love the Lord Jesus Christ. It is evident that they love one another, and it's evident that they love you. And so you are blessed by God. He has given you a gift in your leaders, and I just want you to know that. Um, I want to affirm that. That is that's sincere. Uh, you know, as I was flying in, um, it's, been a, it's been a challenging season at work. It's been a very busy season, uh, and then some studies as well. Uh, life has been busy for me. And so I was planning on the two-hour flight or so, just watching a movie and just kind of vegetating some and, you know, just getting some downtime. Just I saw that was going to be a perfect opportunity, protected downtime. And the problem was I, the, the Wi-Fi, I just couldn't connect to the Wi-Fi to watch a movie. Um, so those plans were kind of thrown out. But it's okay, uh, don't feel too bad for me because there wasn't, wasn't really any movies worth watching. I kind of thumbed through the ones that were available and one or two were somewhat interesting, but many were not. And it shouldn't be surprising because if you think about it, um, Hollywood really has done a bad job of giving us really good movies recently. Um, there are some that are, that are good, of course, but when you think about overall, it just seems like Hollywood is producing these very mediocre at best. Uh, subpar at worst movies. I mean, how many remakes of movies that should never have been made the first time are they going to give us? And so you just look at this and think, what in the world? Are they out of stories? Have they just come to the end of their creativity? What, what's going on? And, and yet, at the same time, I don't know statistics, but it seems like we keep lining up to pay for these movies to see them. We keep going. And uh, it shouldn't surprise us then that if we're going to go for mediocre fare, they'll keep giving us that. But I think the reason why we do this, the reason that we will find ourselves drawn to movies, even if they are not the most riveting, uh, we are drawn to books, to television and so forth, is because God has hardwired an insatiable appetite for story within our hearts. I, I believe he's placed that within us for a reason, because God is the greatest storyteller ever. And he's given us the greatest story ever in Scripture. And when I say story in this context, of course, I mean absolutely true story. The events that unfolded in Scripture. 
He is by far the best at this. And, and I really believe that Hollywood and, and the books and so forth, what they do is they echo, even in some very small way, that story. I mean, think about it. Why are we so drawn to stories of redemption, for example? Because of the story of redemption in Scripture. And so God uses this as a magnet, if you will, to draw us to his truth that he's given us in Scripture. Now, if that's the case, have you ever wondered why the four Gospels begin the way they do? I mean, think about it with me. If, if God is the master storyteller, if this is the best story ever, why would John begin with this wordy prologue about the Word, this kind of mysterious, unclear prologue in John chapter 1? It, it's an odd way to start the story of Jesus, isn't it? And why would Matthew begin with a genealogy? What some would feel is the driest of parts of Scripture. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Why would Mark and Luke begin their accounts that really have more to deal with John than Jesus? It really seems like an odd way to begin the story of Jesus. We would expect Luke chapter 2 to be Luke chapter 1. Because, I mean, Luke chapter 2, just cheat ahead with me and, and look at that. You see so many amazing details of a story, don't you? You see the virgin birth. A literal virgin giving birth to a son. Now, that's storytelling right there. Angels proclaiming in the fields the birth of the Messiah, the Savior. That's storytelling. Wise men from afar hearing word of this and beginning their travel to worship at the foot of the king as a toddler after this. That's amazing storytelling. We would say, if I were Luke's editor, I would say, Luke, maybe you should consider doing one first. Because that'll grab people and pull them in a lot more than these details of this guy named Zechariah and John the Baptist. But my friends, I think the reason why the Gospels begin the way they do is because God is the greatest storyteller. And this story is much greater than we can fathom. It's because in writing the way they did, each of these gospel writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving us exactly what God wanted us to have, each of these writers are reminding us that the story does not begin here of Jesus. They are continuing the story of Jesus. Jesus' story began long before this, all throughout the Old Testament. And these writers are simply picking up that story midstream. Because each of the gospel writers begins with a way to connect everything that follows with everything that preceded. So think about John with that understanding. Why did John begin the way he did with this prologue about the word? Because John 1 is an echo of Genesis 1, where God created everything by the word. And if you read John 1 and Genesis 1 side by side, it is apparent what John was doing here, making this connection. John's point is that Jesus is the one who will recreate. He is the one who will make right all things that sin has wronged. Matthew begins with a genealogy because it's far from dry. It's basically a summary of the entire Old Testament. He walks us through, he guides us through how all the Old Testament is driving toward this moment in history he's about to tell us about. Jesus is the one who would bring blessing to all the world foretold to Abraham. 
Jesus is the kinsman redeemer, greater than Boaz redeeming Ruth. Jesus is the greater king than King David. Jesus is the savior of Jews and Gentiles alike, which is why Gentiles are included in this line of Christ. And Jesus is the savior of both men and women alike. He is the savior of all. Mark and Luke begin the way they do with John, as we're going to see today, because John is the fulfillment of one of the final prophecies of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. Indeed, all the Old Testament, all the pages in our Bibles before the page we're on today are about Jesus. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing us to who Jesus is and what he would do, and much beyond that. All the passages, all the stories in one way or another points us to Christ Jesus who was coming, who has come, and will come again. Now, I don't know about you, you, but for me, this is what I love about Scripture. I find the more time I just read this book, the more time I, I set aside and just dive into it and just read it, not even studying it, just reading it, the more beautiful it becomes. When I just read it and drink this in on my own and spend time and let the Holy Spirit guide me to truth, let the Holy Spirit show me this one cohesive, beautiful story, I'm just blown away. I find myself in awe. It never gets old. And I think the reason why that is is because God has given this story and and hardwired story within our hearts because he wants us to draw us to him through this story. He wants us to love scripture, love spending time in it, so that we can even more importantly love him and love spending time with him. In today's passage, we're going to see Zechariah. He helps us grasp the importance, again, of of John as this bridge, if it were, between the Old Testament and Jesus. And and he hearkens back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where we read this, Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. John, at least in part, is the fulfillment of this prophecy from Malachi 4, 5. And after that prophecy, there were 400 years of silence, And then this prophecy broke the silence before a cry of a baby would break the silence even more beautifully. You see, John was the forerunner of Jesus. He he was the herald declaring the arrival of the king. No king would show up in town without a herald telling the people to prepare themselves because royalty has arrived. John is that herald. John is the prophet crying out for the people to repent of their sin, to cast aside their religiosity, to cast aside their hollow practices of worship that meant nothing because their hearts were not in it, and repent of that and prepare their hearts to become contrite so that they would receive Christ Jesus when he was to arrive soon. This is why John gets a decent amount of real estate in the scriptures early in the Gospels because he plays such a critical role. Now, there's a lot in this passage, and so what I want to do just for our time this morning is I just want to bring to your attention three basic observations. Uh, Perhaps you have not really studied this passage much, and so I just want to kind of bring three observations to help guide you in this text, 
And then I want to have just three main points that I'm going to draw from verses 74 and 75 specifically. Three, I believe, highlights. I could have chosen many different places to land here. But just for clarity, simplicity, and I believe power because of God to draw our attention to three main ideas. So first, those three observations real quick. The first one is this. I want you to notice with me the language that that Zechariah uses is not the norm of who Israel thought the Messiah would be. If you understand what the people are waiting for, they were not waiting for a spiritual deliverer. Actually, they were waiting for a political deliverer, a military leader or a political leader who could rescue them not from sin but from Rome. Zechariah does not fall into that trap. You notice his language is one that draws our attention toward the spiritual reality that Jesus has come as a greater deliverer, a greater Messiah. And the thing is, Zechariah had no way to know what was going to happen. Remember, this is before Jesus was even born. Zechariah had no way to know the words that Jesus would teach. He had no way to know the miracles Jesus would perform. He had no way to know what Jesus would do on the cross, and he had no way to know of an empty tomb that would play such a critical role in human history. But Zechariah, filled by the Holy Spirit, prophesies of these things and speaks of that salvific work of Christ all the same. Again, this chapter, this section is introduced in verse 67 as Messianic prophecy, and indeed it is based on what Zechariah shares. The second thing I want you to notice is that the first part of this prophecy, it's broken into two parts. The first part is in verses 68 to 75. It focuses on Jesus, and notice that the past tense is used. Zechariah speaks in the past tense, and of course, uh, Luke records it as such. Why is that significant? I believe that's significant because Zechariah, again, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, is speaking of things in the future as if they've already happened because they are sure that they are happening because God is, is providential. God is sovereign. God will bring to pass what he has promised all the way back, starting in Genesis 3, that the Messiah would save his people. The actions had not been completed yet from our perspective, By God's divine decree, they were as sure as done. And the third thing I want you to notice is that the second part of this, verses 76 to 79, are about John the Baptist, Zechariah prophesying there about his son. And notice you see a shift there. He's writing in the future tense. But I want you to notice even there, the focus is not on John. The focus is rather on Jesus, the one John would point to, which is fitting. Remember, John would say later, I must decrease so that he might increase. So with those three observations, just kind of said to kind of give you a a brief overview of the landscape before us, let me just with our remaining time talk about three critical changes that the one prophesied Jesus would bring and has brought from our perspective in verses 74 and 75. Let me just read those two verses again, even though they pick up in mid-sentence. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Three ideas I want to bring to bear there. The first one is that the one prophesied would bring an end of fear in his people, verse 74. Second, the one prophesied would bring about holiness and righteousness in his people, verse 75. 
And then finally, the one prophesied would bring his people into the presence of holy God. Also, verse 75. And my goal this morning is to present each of these three truths in light of the backdrop that Zechariah, a priest, shared them with, temple worship. The hearers of that day would have seen Zechariah, a priest, prophesying, perhaps in the literal shadows of the temple, and understood well that Zechariah is drawing imagery from temple worship pointing to Jesus. And so my goal is to connect those dots for us this morning. So let's do that. The first big idea, the one prophesied would bring an end of fear in his people, verse 74. And again, it's, it's interesting. Interesting is not the right word. Um, it's God-ordained that we would be discussing this this morning. Um, I prepared this message weeks ago, way before coronavirus was the thing it has become, not knowing that your pastor would send out an email and talking about fears. And my friends, there is cause for us to be wise, of course. But as we're going to see, there's no cause for us to fear. Christ has put an end to fear. You see, Israel lived in perpetual fear in their day. I mean, think through the Old Testament. Just thumb through the Old Testament in your mind and your heart with me. And, and consider Israel. They, they were always threatened by enemies. Egypt, the Philistines. All of those pesky ites that we don't know who they are or where they're from. Assyria, Babylon. It seems like Israel always had an enemy encroaching on their land, always in war, or sometimes even in captivity by these enemies. And in Zechariah's day and, and in Jesus' day, of course, that, that enemy, that occupying force was Rome, perhaps one of the mightiest military armies ever, at least in that day. And so Israel was always vulnerable, always in fear of what might happen tomorrow when some other army decided to make an advance. But as, as much of fear as that probably welled up in the people of Israel, that fear was dwarfed by another fear. You see, the people were in fear of God as well. And I don't mean the positive fear of God the Bible speaks of. The Bible says that we are to be in fear of God in, in terms of a reverence, a respect, an awe. I mean a literal fear. Israel was literally afraid that God was going to bring judgment and rain fire down upon them at any moment because they were in perpetual sin. This is a story of the Old Testament. I'm grateful that your church has been using the gospel project, that your kids have had this year and a half journey through the Old Testament. And if you are parents of the child and have been asking them what they've learned, you've probably heard the same refrain over and over again, sin and death. We cover that a lot, and sometimes we're given grief for covering a lot because the Bible covers it a lot. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of us, too. Sin and death reigned in Israel. The problem was, here was Israel, always at the precipice of discipline, often experiencing that discipline, and yet they had no definitive answer. They had no way to answer God's wrath always knocking at the door. Instead, what they did is they had to make sacrifice, animal sacrifice, year after year, 
day after day, hoping to appease God, hoping to slow, to, to stem his wrath, at least for another day. And they never were quite sure of where they stood with God. That's fear. But then Christ came and changed all of that. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, beautifully pictures the transformation because of Christ. This is what we read there. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Before Christ, there is only one person, the chief high priest, who could come before holy God. And even that, just on one day of the year, a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was only on that day that the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, to make sacrifice on behalf of the people. And even then, I'd imagine he did that likely in great fear and trepidation, realizing he was a sinful man in the presence of a holy God on holy ground. Zechariah was a priest. He was not the chief priest, but he was a priest all the same, and he would have understood this fear to some degree. In that day, there were many priests, so they operated in what were called courses. They would take turns serving in different roles. And for many priests, serving the temple itself was a literally once-in-a-lifetime event. Some priests could go their entire lives and never serve in the temple. So can you imagine what it was like when it was your turn finally to serve in the temple? And you're serving in the shadow of God's presence, not even in his presence. Can you imagine how unnerving that was? Knowing you're a sinful person, knowing you got in an argument with your spouse that morning, and you're on your way to work in the temple with this sin that has not been dealt with, and you're about to go before a holy God who says, I want nothing to do with sin. Can you imagine the fear? So Zechariah would have understood this fear well. But again, what he prophesies here is that Christ has put an end to such fear. And now because of Christ, all of us, not just a chief high priest or not just priests who are born of the right lineage, but all of us in Christ, all of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, all of us who are brothers and sisters can come before God every day, all day, any day, not with fear, but notice what we read from the writer of Hebrews, with boldness, with confidence, not with arrogance, but with confidence unwavering confidence knowing what? That God has and will accept us no matter what. My friends, there are many things that may keep us awake at night. Many people are being kept awake at night right now because of the coronavirus. War. Terrorism. Economic ruin. Children who are going astray. I mean, you name it, there are many things that may keep us awake at night, but the one thing that should never, ever cause us to go sleepless in fear is wondering if God will accept us, because in Christ, the answer is yes, he has, yes, he will, there's no room for fear. And my friends, just as an encouragement, understand this, 
If God has resolved the greatest fear we can have, why do we fear these lesser fears? Be wise. Wash your hands. But don't fear. Because we are held in the sovereign, pureled hand of God the Father. This takes us to the second change brought by Christ. The one prophesied would bring about holiness and righteousness in his people, verse 75. You see, the primary function of Zechariah and the other priests could be really simplified to this. They interceded for the people. So they would go between the people and God. They would perform these sacrifices on behalf of the people and do those on a, on a regular schedule. Uh, read the first few chapters of Leviticus. It talks about the different sacrifices that you could offer for different reasons, and those happened during the year. But then also on the Day of Atonement, a little bit later in Leviticus, you can read about that. They would offer this sacrifice on behalf of all the people's sins. And so they did this on a regular schedule, and that is the exact problem. They had to do this on a regular schedule. It never ended day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, blood of animals, blood of goats and bulls flowed from the temple grounds to try to cover the sins of the people. But then Christ came and changed it all. Unlike that system where the people were in perpetual unholiness and unrighteousness, again, always needing new sacrifice, and as soon as the sacrifice was made and they left again, one driver cut you off on his donkey on the way out of the temple, didn't use his turn signal, and sin wells up in your heart, in your mind, and perhaps your lips, and that blood that was just shed is no more good for that. This is new, right? So you're stuck in unholiness. You're stuck in unrighteousness. But Christ changed it. One of my favorite verses in all Scripture, the verse that probably, if, if God said, Brian, I'll let you choose one verse to implant in the heart of every believer, it would probably be this one. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's so significant. He, which means God, made the one who did not know sin, Christ Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this verse, we see what's often called the great exchange, that Christ took something from us and he exchanged it. He gave us something. Most of the time, this is how I grew up thinking just in the first half of this. I understood salvation in that Christ took my sin from me. I didn't understand the second half of the great exchange, and it crippled my spiritual vitality. You see, if Christ merely took our sin for us and forgave us, that's critical. Do not hear me cheapen that. This is absolutely essential. But if that is all that Christ did, he would have left us merely neutral before Father God. God's demand of humanity was not neutrality. God's demand was obedience. My disobedience may have been forgiven, but I would not be obedient in that moment. But that's not all Christ did. It's even more beautiful than that. It's more amazing than that. Because in the place vacated by my sin, Christ deposited his own righteousness and did the same for you as well. And so you are holy and righteous before God. How does God see you right now? Whether you feel like it or not is beside the point. If you've trusted in Christ, this is how he sees you, period, no matter what. Forgiven, 
holy, righteous, blameless, as his beloved child, fully accepted by him. My friends, this is why there's no place for fear of God's acceptance. Because our acceptance is not based on what we might or what we might not do. Our acceptance is based on what Christ has done. On his completed work. The perfect life he lived. The perfect death he paid. The perfect resurrection from the dead affirming his victory. Christ was the perfect sacrifice for us to end all those other sacrifices that were imperfect. They all pointed to this one. I suspect... Just my suspicion, this is why God in his sovereignty allowed Rome to destroy the temple in 70 AD. Because sacrifice of an animal has not occurred for over 2,000 years. Why? I believe it's because God's exclamation point of saying, no, no more. You need not do the inferior when the greater has come. Christ Jesus has brought an end to all sacrifice. There's no longer this fear of if it's good enough. There's no longer living in unholiness and righteousness until the next sacrifice. In Christ, you are without fear. You're holy and righteous once and for all. That takes us to the third change that Christ brought about. The one prophesied would bring his people into the presence of holy God. This is the pinnacle of it all. Holiness and righteousness and living without fear are great. They are important. Do not hear me diminish them. But I would argue if it weren't for this last part, it's kind of meaningless. Because God does not intend us to be without fear and holy and righteous on some far-off distant planet apart from fellowship with him. He's God. He could have arranged that if he wanted to. That's not his heart. That's not his plan. God's desire all along has been for his people, us, to be in relationship with him. We see this in creation, don't we? In the creation order, God would come to earth to be with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 before the fall. That was his rhythm. That was his practice. God condescending, coming down to be with his people, to be in relationship with them. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Even after they sinned, even after rebellion swept through the world. And people, us, turned our backs on God and said, no, we want nothing to do with you. What did God do? He kept chasing after us. We see it in how he led his people in the Old Testament. We see him in the construction of the temple and the tabernacle that preceded it. That's all there for one reason. It was God desiring to dwell with his people Israel. But again, God's people had limited access to him. As I've said, God's presence was only to be found in the most holy place, and there only one person on one day a year could enter. But then Christ came and changed all of that. John 1, 14 explains, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word can be translated tabernacled among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, my friends, John wanted to start his gospel that way because he wanted us to understand that Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is God who came to earth to dwell among his people, which we're going to see in Luke 2 after this. And then he's going to provide the means for God to be with his people always through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which came after Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection from the dead. And this is what our faith rests on. This is what it's all about. This is why we're here today. 
for relationship. See, Jesus providing the means not merely for salvation from sin, just a a way to escape the flames of hell. That's, That's not what Jesus was about. More importantly, more beautifully, Jesus came so that we would have this personal relationship, friendship, sonship, daughtership with God Almighty. In Christ, we can know and love God, and we are known and loved by God. The original audience of Zechariah's prophecy were Israelites living in the shadow of the temple. They were people who longed for an end of fear. A people who longed for holiness and righteousness. A people who longed for relationship with God. Sounds a lot like our world today, doesn't it? And the beauty is, is we no longer have to long for these things if we've trusted in Christ. While our longing heart may have echoed this to some degree before Christ, in Christ we have found the answer, the satisfaction of those longings. And this is why Luke 1 is such good news for us. Because the prophetic message that Zechariah reached back thousands of years to grab also reaches forward thousands of years to today to us. And he's had this message for us as well. So this is what Christ has brought us. Today, we stand, we literally stand in in confidence. In a minute, we're going to stand in God's presence. And we do so in confidence before God, knowing again that we're fully forgiven in righteousness because Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, has come. This world offers many different ways for us to define our identity, doesn't it? And some of us are searching for ways to define our identity, and some of us may be searching in the wrong places. And they're going to leave you unsatisfied. In Christ, he has given us our identity. It's what we've talked about this morning. My friends, this is who we are. This is who we are in Christ. We are people who stand before God because of the work of our gracious Savior. We are people who are fully accepted by God at all times because of the work of our Savior. A people who bask in the glory of God's love and mercy and grace at all times. We are a peculiar people of God, a pleasing aroma to him, beloved forevermore because of the work of Christ Jesus. That is your identity. That is the gospel. Let's stand.